Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I know we've all been there. You probably wish there was a better way to share music than sending a silly screenshot to your friends. With earbuds, there is. It makes music social by allowing you to broadcast your music in real time to your friends. The best part, it's absolutely free. You just need an Apple Music or Spotify premium account. So dive in, download earbuds now, and follow this podcast at 100 words, okay? Dive in, do that, but basically just download the app. It's so much fun. It's so easy to share it with your friends and have them tune into the music that you like. And then in turn, they'll like. Okay? Now, here's the show. Greetings, everybody. How are you doing this afternoon or evening or morning or middle of the night? Whenever you're listening to this, welcome to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I am your ever-present guide, Ray Harkins, through this beautiful, beautiful world that is independent music. You know, punk, hardcore, indie rock, all that stuff. But there's something about the DIY ethic in scene and finding a room, booking it, paying $100 to rent it, and then paying all the bands $300 to play. And just, oh, that whole thing is so foundational. I just realize it the older I get. So anyways, what do we have today? We have a person who I have tentatively had on my list for quite some time because I was like... I don't know, like he shared a lot about himself already. I don't know if I'll be able to like uncover any things that he hasn't really spoken about. Jonah Matranga, he played in FAR. He also played under the moniker One Line Drawing for a bit. He played in New End Original. And he now just go just plays music under his name, Jonah Matranga. I loved FAR. I saw them a couple of times. And I also really, really, really enjoyed One Line Drawing as well. Um, was you know we, we talk in depth about that just because it was such a, a cultural force when it was happening within the uh, independent music scene. But Jonah was uh, as great as I thought he was going to be, but um, was yeah, like, and this is no diss to people that uh, are like this, because frankly, I am like this. Sometimes you have the ability to jeopardize a conversation and like you're, you're, you know, you're steering 90% of it. And of course a podcast is about that, but some people, uh, don't have the ability to like actually listen to the question and respond to it and then kind of have a conversation around that. And I was fearful that Jonah was going to, you know, kind of be in that and not like railroad the conversation, but just, you know, lead in ways where I'm like, I'd be fine following him, but didn't exactly pick at the things that I was personally interested in. I could not have been more wrong. Jonah was was very uh, engaged in answering the stuff and then also bringing up other things, and it was spectacular. So, you know, don't judge a book by the cover, right? Okay? I mean, even though I didn't really know Jonah that well to begin with, uh, you know, I felt like I knew him already. But anyways, that is, uh, that's, that's what I got to tell you about that. But he also actually 
has a amazing project that he's doing right now called Halfway to 100, where he's doing 100 songs. He's doing a Kickstarter for it right now. Um, just Google Halfway to 100, and you'll be able to find it pretty quickly and easily. Um, I supported the project. I'm very excited to, uh, yeah, see this come out in the world. It'll be exciting. So, yeah, that's what he is uh, pushing, as it were, right now. What else do I got to tell you about? Well, I'm making some changes personally going to, uh, you know, potentially, well, not potentially, I am going to a new job. I have not, I guess, formally announced it yet, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I will be in the next, uh, next about two weeks or so. And I'm going to Detroit next week, which I'm excited about for some work stuff, podcast stuff. And, uh, I get to attend some shows this weekend. I get to see have hearts. And then I also get to go to sound and fury and I get to see the ghost inside. So it's a busy busy couple of days, but, um, you know, fun stuff, all things that are, uh, special to me, I guess, you know, where it's just like, (laughs) I find that the shows that I go to now, and I'm sure that many of you feel the same way where, you know, when you're 16, 17 years old, like you're just kind of like looking to fill up time, you know, you're just like, okay, what, what can I do tonight? What can I do tomorrow night? What can I do two weeks from now or whatever? Even if people plan that far ahead. And now I find myself, where the things that I choose, I'm, I'm having to plan them more, um, uh, I guess deliberately, but then the things that I choose to do, I'd be, I'm like, Oh man, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> Whether it's like as simple as going to a movie, it's not kind of just like me filling time, you know? So I don't know. It's uh, it's exciting. So anyways, that's, that's all I got for you. Here's Jonah. He was such a great conversation. And like I said, um, just was, was open forthcoming everything I thought he was going to be he delivered in spades and uh, support his project halfway to 100. So here's our chat, and I will talk to you later. Just cut away the noise Listen for that voice Don't give up I live in Southern California, so I and I'm 38, so I definitely existed in the era of Coos Cafe. Where you sure did. So definitely saw saw you guys far play there, and then uh, definitely saw one line drawing play there. And so, you know, I, I feel in many respects that even though you're you were already a grown up when I was watching you, I felt like I've watched you grown up grow up musically as well. You um, really, you really have. I mean, I was, I, I truly was kind of a a late bloomer in that way i think and coos is is honestly one of the places where i felt like yeah between far and one line drawing that i really did grow up musically um so that's pretty cool yeah yeah for sure and you've always seemed and i honestly don't mean i mean this in a good way sure um, the same and i don't mean that like i said sort of like oh geez here's this unevolved person because clearly you have but um, sure you know, like very earnest, heartfelt and, but also like sort of performative in nature. And again, I don't mean that in the like, Oh (laughs) yeah. These are not unfamiliar thoughts to me. Um, I've, I've heard similar things wielded as weapons over the years. And I've also heard them in really effusive loving ways. So it's, to me, it's with almost anything that is said, it's it's the attention and the subtext behind it. Um, so yeah, I totally get that. And I, I do, I think, I think the, I think my, yeah, sort of my sincerity and earnestness, um, has always been, I think, I think is a lot of 
the ways it is with human qualities. Um, it's always been my greatest strength and kind of my Achilles heel too. Um, I think when I'm not on my game or I'm kind of in fear, then it can kind of get a little needy and cloying. Um, and when I'm feeling solid, which is more and more these days, I think I've really grown into it. Um, it, there is something to it that I think, uh, is just really good for me and is who I actually am and not a put on. Um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a very, I've thought about it a lot. I think it is my central quality and, and it kind of ties in with the performative part. Um, I think the performative part, obviously one of the ways I feel the most comfortable as a human being is singing songs. And that's where the really sincere part of being so fucking grateful that anyone cares about it because it is this language that from a very early age has, has been a super, super safe and wonderful place for me. Um, just creating and sharing that with people. Um, and similarly, I think at times in my life when I've been less secure with who I am and felt less free, um, it's a kind of a crutch that I leaned on. And even though it, I think led to some cool moments of success when I really learned about sustainable sort of joy and serenity. I mean, I suppose I'm always learning about that, but I would say over the last 10 years, a lot of the less flattering elements of those qualities that you pointed out have really kind of bloomed in, in much more healthy ways, which is, um, which has been great. I mean, it's most been great for me personally, but I think it's also been great for wherever I'm heading in my, you know, career, if I can even call it that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Cause yeah, they're yeah. definitely, you know, especially as you are putting yourself out there in, uh, you know, not only different musical projects, but you know, different iterations of different, well, different iterations of yourself. And like, Absolutely. When, you, when you have to, you know, granted, this is like a microcosm of growing up in public, but like, you know, you are still growing up in front of people that are observing who you are at, you know, and you're sharing your faults and you know, all your insecurities out there. So I can yeah. understand what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, I, it's, it's satisfying looking back sometimes. Um, and I don't indulge myself too much in that, but I think it can be really educational sometimes. And well, for instance, when I did the 20th anniversary of water and solutions last year, looking back at my lyrics and stuff, it's cool because I've always been thinking about the same stuff. I mean, in fact, writing the book, actually, I remember this high school song that was like, it's called get it off your back. And it was this tirade against the pharmaceutical drug industry and just sort of this, our weird sort of shaming, emotionally stoic culture that leaves us. Yeah. I think kind of violent and waiting to explode. And so I, since before I even understood, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that. So the ideas have remained similar ideas about injustice and systems of oppression. That's always all been there, which is really kind of cool to see. And what I think has changed the most is the sort of the level of serenity with which I expressed that stuff. I think, um, I've been, yeah, super soapboxy in the past and kind of defensive and kind of aggressive. And, um, 
it just this fiery thing. I was raised on fire. There's actually a lyric waiting to be in a song that I've not written yet, which is I was raised on fire and sometimes I still burn. Um, and that's really true about my life. And it informed a lot of the way I interacted with the world for a long time. And I definitely still have my flashes with it, uh, especially in bad traffic or when I'm around an asshole. Um, and it's, I feel a lot happier rather than fighting against other things, just being more of what I think is interesting in the world and sweet. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, that's a, a relatively new frame for me, um, which has been yielding some really cool results where I don't end up as upset, but I still get to be saying what's real for me and not feeling ashamed of that. Sure. That makes total sense. Yeah. And kind of on that same point that, you know, I, I'm not going to try to document many of the things that you've already, you know, shared before, as far as your biographical information, like, you know, you were born in Massachusetts and like you mentioned, you know, raised in fire. In the age of the internet, who knows what is, you know, I've heard the craziest shit, you know, I've got a trust fund that I dye my hair that I, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the, so please let's clear it all up. Right. Right. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's, that's a good point. Um, yeah. But yeah, born and raised in the East Coast in Massachusetts, yeah. and like you said, you had a real tumultuous uh, upbringing. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, I, I wasn't clear of whether or not you, ha- you know, like both parents were in the house, or uh, if you have brothers or sisters. Those are things that I was not aware yeah, yeah. of personally. Um, I have a little sister; she's actually adopted, so just nine months younger than me. Um, and yeah, my dad was around until I was about between three and five those in during those years, I think he was sort of, he was still in Boston, but he was kind of flickering in and out and him and my mom were definitely split. And then he was gone from five. The last time I saw him alive, well, saw him, um, was when I was maybe 10 or something. And then he died when I was 25. Um, so largely since age five, basically, yeah, it was just mom and she never really, Um, she had a couple of relatively serious boyfriends, one dude that lived with us for a minute. Um, but, but ultimately not, um, it was essentially just us and her. Got it. Um, yeah. Got it. And you, I, I'm guessing because of that kind of, you know, more tight knit unit, um, you know, were, did you kind of gravitate towards being by yourself, being really close to your sister, trying to hold on to your mom? Like, I presume you kind of tried all of them. (laughs) Um, sure. I mean, definitely something of an all of the above. Um, music was, yeah, was a, a, a serious savior for me. Um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, neither of my parents were particularly musical. Uh, my mom is not particularly musical. She loves to sing, but you know, by her own, uh, you know, laughing admission, she doesn't have some like amazing voice. Um, but it always was a joyous thing for her, I think. And I think the thing that gave her kind of some peace and some escape. And when we were really little and my dad was around, one thing that would happen is that there'd be these sort of stoner hippie gatherings in our house in Cambridge. And, uh, there was a lot of music and I think it, those were probably some, you know, until everyone got too wasted, uh, I'm sure, um, were some calm times and some peaceful times with lots of, lots of people around. So yeah, music was a big deal. Uh, I've always, I mean, I am incredibly close with my sister. So, you know, in really weird pre-verbal ways that I don't really understand. And we express ourselves entirely differently. So it's, been a real interesting thing for us to figure out how to actually talk to each other. 
Um, and mom, yeah, I mean, there's been no shortage of codependency in the little mom, sister, me trio. I was definitely trying to be the little man of the house growing up, um, as is so often the case, uh, in single parent households and especially households where the dad went away. Um, and I definitely, yeah, get, got a lot of amazing survival skills out of that. And it led to a lot of codependency trying to fix people's stuff, which is, again, something that I would say the last 10, 20 years of my life, I've spent a lot of time untangling so that I can really love people well and be there for them in a really strong and real way without falling into the codependent trap judgment you know, fix people thing. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it also sounds that like, you know, as you started to get out in the world and experiment with your identity and kind of figure sure. out who you were and, you know, junior high, high school and everything sure. like that. Um, you know, it sounds like you experimented with a lot of drugs and, and frankly, a lot of different like lifestyles as well, where you were like, yeah, I'm like a, a beatboxer. I'm like a classic rock dude, yeah. like yep. all yep. of these, these, uh, yep. identities. Um, was that kind of a, a function of, uh, boredom or was it, uh, you know, just basically trying to find a place where you felt comfortable to slot yourself into? I, yeah, I mean, of, of course I don't have any, uh, real clear idea about sure. what is actually true about that. Yep. And, um, I would say that, yeah, the biggest deal was a search for community, a search for places I felt safe. Um, I think from a really early age, the people I felt the most connected to were other people who loved ideas, whether it was music or dancing or whatever it was. Um, I have some really, I mean, break dancing and st- and hip hop in general, I have some, uh, some pretty expansive thoughts on in terms of, um, I think a lot of what drives the guts of hip hop and it's it sort of, it's easy to look at hip hop in this black and white way and sort of white people that are into it, you know, about appropriation and about all this stuff. And I think a lot of that is, is very real. And I think there's kind of a missing thing for young fatherless men, whatever our skin tone is. I think that hip hop is born of a lot of little dudes trying to be the man of the house and trying to be powerful and trying to be strong. Um, and I think it's probably part of the reason on the sad side for the misogyny in it. Um, and it's also one of the things that draws people like me to it. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I think of when I think of the, the breakdancing thing in particular. And that, that whole thing is that way before I was even thinking anything like that, I think that's kind of what spoke to me about two turntables and a microphone and, I think it's similarly what does drive punk rock and um, folk music and a lot of scenes that, um, yeah, sort of like where young, angry men have been. I think a lot of that does really come down to trying to figure out what it is to be a man in a healthy way. Um, So I think there was a lot of that going on through all of that searching. Um, The drugs, yeah, I mean, it... uh, I mean, partly I grew up around a lot of drugs, um, partly however that works hereditarily um, is there, uh, partly they're a super fun escape, partly they're a really, can be a really uh, holistic 
self-medication, um, especially when addiction and trauma doesn't get too tied into it. And, and then, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think my early experimentation with psychedelics, it's not to be cliche, but I think it, it, I think it opened up some stuff for me. Um, when I was on acid, it's the first time I ever thought that I was doing too many drugs. Honestly, is like the first thing that broke through my my habit and denial. Um, and so, I think that led to a lot of other experimentation and curiosity about thought and ways of considering the world. Um, and I've you know I've tried everything from Scientology to Buddhism to you know ten like ten day silent meditation retreats to I'm a big twelve step kid. I mean, I wrote my senior paper in high school on you know on getting sober and a, a, like a critique of the twelve step system and um, and now I'm a big Al Anon kid and because it's more again more about codependency and and learning to love people in healthy ways and love myself. Um, but yeah, it's it's I've always just been an incredibly curious person and. I've where I've arrived is is not really leaning on any of the stories too much, but but continuing to be curious about different ways that people have tried to explain our existence and not taking any of them too seriously, but looking for the commonality uh, between them. I really love taking different systems of a belief that that seem totally disparate and finding the commonality between them. Cause I think it's all comes down to some pretty simple shit really. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, that's what all those ideas, that's what all those wanderings were about was, was, as it turns out. And also I was, it, it seems worth saying I was a really little kid, like physically I was, they called me tiny bookman and I was like the second smallest kid in my class Mm -hmm. pretty much up through, I'd say the middle of high school. Um, and I was still small and I think that fueled some of my more, I, I had my brain, you know, I had my brain and I had these survival skills that I learned growing up in chaos and poverty. Um, and then when I found music and that combined to circle back to your performative thing, that was the first time I really had a sense of kind of autonomy and power and feeling attractive to people and, was was starting to play guitar and perform. I mean, it's 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 such a cliche, and it's 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 true. Um, and it's one of the many reasons I feel really really lucky that I didn't get lost in that. Because in terms of trying to chase that that power and that success, because I've seen it eat so many people up. And I think if I had ever had more success, money, power, whatever, attention, I think it could have destroyed me too. So I feel very, very lucky that I've had, I'm lucky that I've been able to make a living doing this, lucky for all of that good fortune and really lucky that I ever got uh, the big break as it works. I think it would have broken me. I ride so hard for this company called Drip Drop. And what do they do? They help you battle dehydration, whether it's like working out, if you're traveling a lot, heat exhaustion, whatever it is, they're there to help you become the most hydrated person that you possibly know. And it's summer, so it's literally the season for dehydration. So what is it? It is not some huge beverage company. It is a legit remedy for dehydration. This formula has three times the electrolytes and half the sugar of sport drinks. So it comes in a little stick. You basically peel the top, mix it with 16 ounces of water, and then boom, it works fast and tastes amazing. 
I've had the watermelon, the lemon, and I would have, I, I think the lemon, the lemon is my personal favorite. It tastes amazing. And then you can say goodbye to headaches, fatigue, anything else that you're experiencing because of dehydration. And did you know dehydration is the leading cause of jet lag? I didn't know that, but yes, drip drop is the best. I drink it. I feel great. And then I'm moving on with my day. So go to dripdrop.com slash words to get 20% off of any purchase. That's dripdrop.com slash words. Try this out. I promise you'll love it. Okay. Now on with the show. And then, you know, as you were, um, you know, kind of figuring out your, your next steps in life as you were, you know, doing school and having to <laughs> kind of focus on an idea of like, Oh, what, what, what would a career be like? You know, cause you went, you moved out West and went to you know, Pitzer college, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So what was the kind of like career path? before music. I mean, music obviously has always been the, the, the overarching thing for yourself, but, uh, what was, kind yeah, of the but it idea? was definitely not a career path initially. I mean, truly that I, I think I started playing music for the same reason as a gazillion other people, which is feeling a little bit lonely, um, being kind of curious the you know, the myth of rock and roll and rock stardom. And we literally have a word in our lexicon just called rock star that has nothing to do with being a musician at this point, um, being a rock star. And it's just so strange to me. So I had those dreams as much as anyone. And more than anything, it just seems like it kept being the most fun I could figure out how to have. Um, it just kept being interesting to me while other people got interested in other things or jobs or growing up or whatever it was. I just kept being curious about music. So when I got out of school, it wasn't like, I'm going to go be a fucking rock star. It was more like, this is a good time to try things. My rent is really cheap. Um, my, I don't have a career path set. Um, and I just, I just kind of kept frankly chipping away on the parts I didn't like and saw if, if I keep doing that, can I still figure out a way to be an artist that is worth it? And of course, when I had my daughter, when all that was just starting out, it really upped the ante on this better. I've got to figure out a way to make this really, really interesting and fulfilling or else the logistical pain in the ass of it isn't worth it. Um, so it really was, it, I always feel like my career as it were to be of being a musician is on really, really shaky ground, which I kind of love because I never take it for granted and I never really lean on it. I'm just at this point happy that it's still happening because um, I don't like most of the other jobs I hear about in the world. Um, and it's funny to look back, you know, to think that I've been doing it as a job for 25 years now. It's, 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 kind of remarkable to me, honestly, but it was really not, I was not one of those kids who was either a, a genius, particularly like a lot of my friends were way better musicians than me, frankly. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the Elton John movie, but it's really on my mind because I just saw it. Um, and there are a lot of parallels. I mean, I saw a life that was, went the very different way than mine. He was, I mean, as they tell it in the movie, this sort of geniusy kid who was super, super fucking driven and, um, and then had all of this insane fame and fortune come to him and it nearly destroyed him. And, um, so it was a real reminder of everything we're talking about right now. Um, but I was not that kid. I was not, I, I was, I was just as interested in being an English teacher, um, for 
you know, or just like a really young sort of third grade and below kind of teacher, uh, just to, just to be around humans before they get all fucked up and, and right. try and, and try and be a decent guide to them. Cause I was so desperate for father figures and mentors at that time in my life. So I'm still really driven by that, honestly. And I think a lot of my music has been created unconsciously to be a helpful voice for other, you know, I guess I mostly think of like adolescent boys, but, um, people of any gender or, or background just to have a little foothold if they're feeling lost. Um, and so that's as much of a part of this as anything, honestly, it was really never about, uh, the, the rock star thing, except in the most superficial kind of sixth grade dreamy ways. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I but think- some people, for some people that's different. Some people feel really called and committed and I, I, it was just really never me. It just kind of, I just kind of kept going. It's yeah. weird. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of it too is the, um, you know, the, the time and place you are raised in as well, where it's like, I, I think any kid that gets exposed to, you know, the, the more DIY, you know, punk hardcore side of things, it's like no, very few people <laughs> have the idea that it's like, oh man, this is really going to like break it through to the mainstream or whatever. <laughs> it's well, like, that's, that's true for, for, and, and I think if more would be punk people were honest about it. Everyone starts out with those limo backstage dreams because that's just in our water as a culture. And then one way, including mine, I think of navigating that was like, Oh wow. So there's this other little world where I can still make music and maybe even make a living doing it, but not without, not with all that kind of superficial bullshit. Um, and of course, punk rock can be as superficial as anything, just on a smaller scale, and can be very oppressively sceny and whatever annoying. Um, and yeah, I I, I I I tend to think that's a revisionist history origin story thing that a lot of punk people do. Um, I yeah, and most people who I've ever gotten sort of. Uh, close with in the community have, have, yeah, have echoed the same thing that I went through, which was like, I had these dreams and then I figured out I didn't want some of these dreams. So I tried to figure out another way. Um, and I think that's the most pure and wonderful part of the punk community is not people trying to fit into something, but rather people who are just trying to figure out a way to fucking survive. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, clearly after, you know, you graduated, you know, Pitzer, you moved to Sacramento. It's well yep. documented. That's obviously where far started. No, that's, that's cool though. Yeah. A lot of people think I was born in Sacramento. It's <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah. But, and it is kind of where, you know, my grown up life definitely, I mean, literally I went there after college, you know, and got my first jobs and the whole thing. So yeah, Sacto. Yep. Sacktown. Um, so, you know, as you started to, you know, be able to put together the band and, you know, start to play out and tour and start to experiment with all of that or start to experience all of the stuff that comes with playing in a band. Sure. You know, did you particularly, uh, you know, like the sort of business of the band? I mean, you know, clearly in many iteration sense, like, you know, you are clearly the you know main business person of all of your, uh, you know, your musical projects, but did you have a taste for that initially or is that just kind of a function out of the fact that, you know, you need to do this because clearly it's your, you know, livelihood and your career. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think 
a lot about the different qualities that I was given or cultivated or whatever, however that works, that have let me exist as an artist. And definitely one of those qualities, it's not necessarily a business sense per se, because ironically, in a lot of bands I've been in, I have definitely been the one with the most entrepreneurial kind of creative spirit. Like, let's make the t-shirt, let's make the record, let's, you know, let's make sure we have it at the shows. And I've also been the voice that is most stridently against the larger business decisions. Let's go get this other manager. Let's get a bigger booking agent. Let's put our music in this commercial. Like a lot of things that that uh, I've been off. I've said no a lot. And so that doesn't really jibe with the business person thing. And I've also, yeah, I mean, this is like my gazillionth Kickstarter that I'm doing right now. I've um, really, really enjoyed from ever since I can remember, even way before music, I would, I would, when I was a paper boy on my street, kind of my first job, I would get up really early and we were one of the, we were probably the poorest family on our street. And so I would see all this trash that some pretty rich people would put out that seemed really functional to me. And, you know, cameras that worked and toaster ovens that worked and furniture that was fine and just all of this stuff. And I would, I would, because I would get first pick because I was up so early being the paper boy, I would drag home a bunch of stuff. Um, and then every couple of weeks I'd have yard sales. And because I didn't want to deal with the pricing and all that stuff, I would just call them. And my mom like has a flyer of this, uh, you know, pick your price yard sales. And people would just come and I would essentially, you know, just sort of, I'm sure sometimes probably sell back stuff to other rich people that I had, you know, gotten from other rich people's garbage. Um, so I always had this neat idea about exchange and different ways to make a living and exist in this world. Um, and that really easily led into music because I've always been so fucking psyched that anyone cares about any of this music, much less cares about it enough to buy something for me. Um, that, I've loved that conversation from the start. I just love so much saying, yeah, I made this t-shirt and I put this picture on it. Will you pay me more than it costs for a blank t-shirt for it? Um, um, you know, or shit, you know, back when CDs were a thing, you know, and even more so now with stuff that like when people buy a download from me or something, it just blows my mind because I know they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the voluntary exchange thing, I just adore. And business, I know that's business, but for me, that feels a little more like barter, a little more like just fair exchange. And business seems to, I guess I equate the word business with with kind of scaling up um, and playing the bigger venue or getting the bigger light show or getting more roadies or whatever it is. And all that stuff has never brought me anything but headaches. And I've never been particularly curious about figuring out how to do it better for better and worse for, you know, as far as my career goes and all that stuff, I don't, I just don't, I don't care about this stuff. I don't really like it, but man, just the act of making something and holding it out to the world and saying, would you like this? And will you give me some money for it? Is it's just, I just, I think that's a really beautiful, endlessly interesting 
thing to do. And it is absolutely part of the reason that I've been able to exist as an artist, because a lot of artist friends I know get really hung up on that um, and feel like it's not artistic to set a price. Um, and I feel like it's just this incredibly creative thing to do. So I feel really lucky that I have that take on it because I know a lot of really fantastic artists that have been so allergic to the entrepreneurial part that they've really never gotten their ideas out there. Sure. No, it's and I, I think, I mean, the way you put it uh, of the it's a transactional relationship, but that doesn't have to be uh, sold. You know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. It's, a, it's sort of like networking. Networking is the creepiest word ever. And hanging out with people with like industries and seeing how you can help each other. That's not creepy at all. That's right. really sweet. That's community. So the difference in community and networking is kind of the difference I'm trying to delineate between um between entrepreneurial exchange, fair exchange and business. Um, yep. that's, that's definitely, and I know they're just words, but it's way more than a semantic distinction for sure. And that's absolutely right. It's, um, it can, abs- I think it can be, I mean, look, it, everything in this world is transactional in one way or another. Um, what capitalism brings to it, what our current iteration of capitalism brings to it, what different personalities bring to it, what fear and insecurity brings to it, what all of these things bring to it, that can get pretty toxic for fucking sure. And I've always felt lucky to have a pretty good bead on, yeah, I want to make a living doing this. And no, I don't want to do that to make a living doing this. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There there are Uh, are lines that are drawn. Yeah. And a lot of artists kind of either fall too far one way or another. I either they're, they're you know either allergic, like I said, to the business part, or they get way too hung up on that, and they get lost. Like anything that was ever fun about it for them gets lost, and that's how you end up with really successful people committing suicide and being on meds and you know being addicted to everything. I think is because they lost what was fun about it, um, and so that that middle ground is a it's a it's a tough one, um, and I feel really really lucky that I'm able to. Traverse it as comfortably as I am. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Sonos is the best speaker you could possibly ever put in your house, your apartment. Frankly, I would even put them in my like car or if I could put them in my head, I would. So Sonos is a wireless speaker system that you can set up with the flick of a switch. It almost feels like less than five minutes. You can be up and running with whatever speaker you are purchasing from them. 
I have two of them in my house. I got one in the living room. I got one in my kids room. I can control them all from an app on my phone. I can have different music playing in different rooms or I can sync it all up to where it's like, oh yeah, you know, maybe you got an open house, little party. People are walking around, dial it all in. I am going to eventually have one of these in each of the rooms in my house. That is how much I love it. And the sound is flawless. Like everybody's like, okay, yeah, well, you know, speaker, what, what, what can that do? You know, can it sound any better than, you know, what I, when I'm listening out of my computer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Sonos has changed the way I listen to music and you need to go to Sonos.com to learn more, find out about their wide variety of speakers and find one that suits your needs and then boom. Done and done. Your life will be better. Your music listening will be better. And uh, frankly, anybody that lives with you will be like, oh my gosh, this person, this is their many best friend. I, I want to be over at their house all the time. I want to live with them, whatever the case may be. But Sonos is the best way to listen to music, period. Okay? Go to Sonos.com to learn more. Thank you, Sonos. And like you mentioned, kind of, you know, at towards the beginning of the conversation with, yeah. you know, far disbanding because of, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of different reasons, but, you know, most notable, the stresses of tour and, you know, being uh, absent in a person's life uh, back at home, you know, from your, you know, being, being a young father. Um, Absolutely. And, and by the way, far was we had no shortage of fights, almost especially in a little tri reunion. Uh, between Sean always wanted to do stuff a little bigger than me, a little fancier. Um, and I think sometimes, honestly, his were the, certainly on a business level, his, his were the right calls. Um, and I, I just, yeah, we had some really, really serious struggles about that and ingratitude almost even more so. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that that's a perfect example of, of we had really different visions around what success was. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Did you, um, you know, I mean, clearly you made the decision as you did and what was beneficial for you as a human being. Um, you know, did you feel like, cause you know, a lot of people kind of stick with the thing if they feel like it has, um, you know, momentum or the promise that like, okay, that'll be different in six months or something hmm. like that. Sure. Sure. You know? So like, I mean, clearly you didn't feel that way in order to like pull the plug, but like, did you feel that like most of the stones had been kind of unturned and be like, well, you know, yeah, far can be successful and can be a thing, but like, I just don't know if it will ever, um, I guess change from the broader spectrum of the thing, you know, <laughs> to be totally real, I didn't pull the plug on far. I mean, okay. I think that's actually, that's a real, that's a very common misunderstanding, which I totally understand. Um, and I think it's probably something that the Bill and Band might even disagree and they might say that I did pull the plug in fact. But what I know was said was when we were leaving on a tour, I had been showing them these songs. I'd been showing them 14 to 41 and better than this and hostage and these songs I was writing and they didn't really like them or they didn't get them or whatever. And the song has always come first for me. How do I most, most simply and honorably celebrate this idea and let this idea into the world? I take it uh, probably too seriously at times um, because I just think of them as this little life. Um, and so when Far didn't want to play the tunes... I just thought, ah, I really want to, one way or another, see these songs through, just see where they want to go. Um, and so I said that to the guys. I said, hey, 
we're all really cooked and uh, water and solutions kind of wasn't really going anywhere. We had tried some different touring. We, we didn't fit in anywhere. I mean, part of the reason that we even ended up on a major in the first place is because revolution and discord and victory and these other labels that were around at the time uh, just didn't, we were just not cool enough or not indie enough or not punk enough or whatever it was. Um, so we were kind of misfits in the misfit crew. And so we, you know, by the time of water and solutions, we had been banging our head against that world. But you know, we, just as we, uh, sort of the sort of the burgeoning post-hardcore and emo scene on an indie level um, wasn't didn't want us basically except for a few really sweet bands like Sensefield and Strife and Snapcase and stuff um, and of course Deftones because we grew up with them and all that but where they were going the Corn World and Incubus World and as nice as the, the people in those bands were truly we didn't make sense at their shows Um it, especially I didn't make sense at their shows sure. uh, and to say nothing of life of agony and uh, fucking monster magnet and sepultura and uh, just endless, endless shows um, that, that we tried to be on. Um, so water and solutions was going nowhere. I had these songs. I said, why don't we just take a beat? Why don't we just do this tour let the let the record rest. We love it, but it's not. We can't really seem to figure out a way to, you know, get other people into it. Um, and I'm gonna go make these songs, and that apparently really fucking freaked out, especially Sean and I think Chris as well. Um, Johnny was kind of mellow about the whole thing, as far as I remember. But the tour was really tense after that, and we essentially broke up at the end of that tour. But even then, I I never said I want to break up. I just said we seem tired to me, and I want <laughs> I, I want a minute to me to to, you know, to to yeah to be at home. I mean, a, a big thing that kind of really broke up the band was after we we kind of came home and everyone was kind of sad and distant and stressed out. Um, we got offered a tour with uh, Incubus would be headlining. They were sort of blown up. But they weren't too huge yet. And uh, it was going to be either us or System of a Down opening in the middle because System Toxicity hadn't blown up yet or anything like that. Um, so they were kind of coming up. We were coming up. Um, and so but anyway, that was the package. And I was so tired of going out with essentially funk rock bands. I, I just I was so burnt on white people with dreadlocks and adidas fucking sweatsuits and where's the herb bro and just i just was so cooked on it um and i didn't want to do it i didn't want to like be yeah i didn't want to be this band on the bill again that no one fucking got um i wanted to if we were going to do anything i wanted to go out and just headline and play little clubs and just kind of keep building our world that way um but anyway, saying no to that tour, uh, <laughs> I think was the nail. In the that was coffin. the nail. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and again, that wasn't me trying to blow it up. That was me just saying no. no. Um, yeah. But um, saying no is, you know, sometimes doesn't go down super well. Yeah. No. No. I understand exactly what you're saying. And yeah, you got, you know, uh, you did occupy not only an interesting time for 
bands of that nature in general, like that were like, yeah, you're, you know, you're too light for a hardcore show. And clearly, like you said, you don't make sense at these sort of like more, you know, mainstream rockish shows. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's that, that age old thing that happens to certain bands that kind of fit into the, well, we don't know exactly where to put them, you know? Well, it's all flip of like ahead of your time. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it sounds really neat and, and it, and all that stuff, but it's not super fun. I mean, I remember seeing Chevelle, which is a, a band that was super influenced by far, um, seeing them a couple years after we'd broken up opening for filter and the whole audience seemingly just effortlessly getting their odd time signatures and the fact that they weren't super sort of rock presenting, um, and that they were heavy, but still singing and all of this stuff that no one had a fucking clue what to do with. Um, two years earlier, all of a sudden was people kind of got it. And I felt definitely a pang of like, shit, I think we bailed a little too early. Um, but such is life. Yeah, no, totally understand. Yeah. Uh, um, and the thing that I found, um, you know, pretty interesting once, uh, you know, you started to play out under one line drawing, like I, I definitely, sure. I definitely remember going to some of the earlier shows. I, re- I think I remember one where you played at uh, Claremont college, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But it, it was, it was so interesting because, uh, and I, I don't mean this word, um, you know, disparagingly, but it's like, there was sure. this like real cult of personality around you <laughs> where, sure. where, and the shows were so, um, you know, you encourage everybody to sit down and like you were yep. talking about when we were speaking about the business, the, uh, relationship you had to your merch was very much like obviously sliding scale where it's like, yep. Oh, you got $3. That's fine. I'll give you a CD. Yep. Yep. Um, and you know, it, it seems so personal because it was, and that was the environment you were trying to create. Um, yes. did you like, you know, I, you meant to create this atmosphere and you meant to kind of create this, this environment, but like, did you, I guess, kind of notice not right away, but did you notice that it started to become a quote unquote thing as far as the way that people were interacting with you differently than I imagine interacted with you and far? Uh, well, yes. And the fact is people interacted with me that way in far as well. Uh, I, far is where sliding scale started just because again, I'd been doing it my whole life. And if some little kid in fucking Omaha, like one of the eight people that liked us at the show, wanted a shirt and had four bucks, there's no way I'm not giving them that shirt. Um, and that again, I think is, there are more than a few, at least mild dustups in the band about that. Um, and so the, I was the same guy for sure. And in one line drawing, that was just kind of, that was just set free. I mean, A, I was free of all of the, you know, just the volume and that kind of a, like adrenaline machismo thing that happens with rock, um, which is beautiful. And it definitely has its really sad side. Um, but I was, I was really psyched to not be in that. I was really psyched to just really have it be me and anyone who gave a shit about the ideas and not to be, um, I did actually open up for some really big bands and those crowds didn't get me either, but they got me a little more and it was kind of a neat time in the scene then. it just was, it just, it was, there were some interesting things happening. It was kind of getting grown enough that people, 
yeah, that I could go around and, and, and make a living doing this kind of weird little thing and open up for a much bigger band and have people kind of get it and hang out after. Um, and that's part of the reason that I stopped using the moniker one line drawing was because just like anything else, and especially one of the saddest things to me about the way emo has become whatever it is now, um, I suppose it's kind of circling back on itself, but when it got really blown up and flat iron eyelinery and stuff like that and sort of hyper sad, all that stuff, that there was a time when it really wasn't like that. And as it kind of took hold and inevitably as things scale up, they just get a little more homogenous. Um, and I didn't like that. I didn't like people coming to the show starting to expect a certain thing. Um, and I didn't, there was, there were one line drawing was popular enough that some labels came calling and, to hear them talk about, you know, having R2 on stage with me or something like that and saying, man, the kids love that, you know, we, we can totally work with that. And I just, I just fucking hated that. <laughs> there's one of the, there's one of the sort of business things. Like right. I loved the idea of it. I loved the communication that was happening with it. I loved everything that was going on around one line drawing and R2 and the intimate shows and all of that stuff. And as it kind of, yeah, blew up. I don't think this is, you know, I think there's probably, there is some self-destructive fear of success stuff that I, I maybe will always have or who knows what, but that aside, there's just something that's lost. I, I've thought of this equation for a long time where, and a show is a great example of it. If, if I'm the initial reason that someone's coming to a show, my music, my songs, my personality, whatever it is, the bigger that show gets, the more people that there are there inherently the lower the percentage will be of people that are there for the reason, for the reason that the show is happening. Um, so the more people that are there, the more people will just be there because other people are there. The more people will be there because they heard about it, but they don't really know what the fuck is going on. And it's nobody's fault, but it inevitably waters down the potential intimacy of it. Um, and, it just got less fun for me as it got more popular. Um, the, the most money I was ever making in my life, which isn't a lot, but the most money I was ever making in my life was when one line drawing was kind of probably on the volunteers time. I was opening up for pretty big bands and doing, you know, certainly bigger shows than I'd ever done on my own. Um, you know, played Hellfest and over for Coheed and for Thursday and for movie life. And, um, and then we're, we're, you know, and those were probably around like thousand two thousand seaters depending yep but then i'd be doing you know three to five hundred seat places which for me was fucking massive um and i liked that part and it certainly helped me me and my kid out and so i don't i don't bemoan it and i just yeah i just didn't like it as much whatever was fun about it was getting a little bit lost in expectations which so often happens um so it was, yeah, and the cult of personality thing was something that I tried to diffuse at every point that I could. I, I, I made kind of jokey stickers about it, kind of, um, you know, I made like Jonah is my co-pilot stickers. And it's like sort of replacing Jesus with the word Jonah, you know, with the name Jonah. Sure. Um, and it was entirely tongue in cheek. I was, I was going to 
I, I, a sticker that I didn't make, but that I probably really should have was, um, was you've got a friend in Jonah, unless you're a fucking asshole. Um, and, and it was sort of really trying to, to just take the heat out of that whole thing. Um, and yep, it's one of those things where I, I had to let go of the one line drawing monitor. Didn't have to, but I chose to let go of it. Sure. Um, just cause by that time, everyone and their mom had quit their band and had a strange pseudonym moniker for being on stage, you know? Um, <laughs> right. And so I was kind of like, all right, this, this is over. And so I, I did the revolutionary thing and just went under my name. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, which I, I say that hopefully it's not lost in right. <laughs> sarcasm. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah it, it was not revolutionary. <laughs> it was ironic. Um, right. Uh, very unintentionally. So, to circle back to that, but that's what went down with that because yeah, that cult of personality thing was, was kind of cool, I guess. Like attention's always nice and some of the conversations were wonderful, but when it started feeling like people were just hanging out, I don't know. Well, there, so, I, I, no, to your, to, to your point. Cause I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're, I like, I like your perception on this as <laughs> least as much as mine. So what do you got? Well, no, I, I think it's one thing when something obviously happens organically and, um, which it clearly did with you. Like, I, I mean, I witnessed it. I saw many shows. I was absolutely drinking the Kool-Aid and was, you know, had many interactions with you at merch from that perspective. But I think once people look at something like that and then look at it from a pure, um, commodification standpoint, which it, it that in and of itself isn't bad, but sure. when you put the uh, pressure to where it's like, okay, how, like like you were talking about, like I just love the idea of like, all right, well, how can we like scale up R two D two to where it's like, you know, when you're playing these like fifteen hundred cap rooms, like you know, totally. maybe we should bring out a big R two robot or you know, just no, like dude was literally talking about projecting it on screens and stuff and this whole thing. And- <laughs> Exactly. I mean, exactly what you're saying. It was it was as every bit as silly as you could imagine. And and to phrase it, yeah, I mean, I kind of got lost in my little rant there. Um, but truly, the most depressing thing there are two there are twin there are twin depressing things about the ruining of what was ever interesting about sort of emo post hardcore culture. And one is the commodification of sincerity. And you know, these days, everyone seemingly from the tiniest clubs on up sells VIP tickets, you know, for that little after show where you get to meet and greet with the artist and hang out, which is just the most blasphemous, disgusting thing for me. Um, and another thing I've said no to over and over and over and over again, especially in gratitude. Um, and just the whole idea of a publicist touting how cool and personable a band is as a selling point, it just always struck me as so ridiculous when I started to see clearly publicist driven stories about how interesting and personable and in like sort of using as a talking point, a selling point that a band goes and hangs out with hangs out at their merch table after the show. Like what the fuck is that? Like to me, it was just like, no, that's just that's what you do. Yep. Um, and it was really depressing for me. So that just to finish it up, like commodification of sincerity was a big bummer for me. Um, and the, uh, and also kind of unrelated, but similar when, when suicide girls and porn entered the kind of indie punk emo post hardcore community, 
nothing against porn. I mean, I got my thoughts on it, but it was, there was something, I don't know. I just feel like something was lost and that's probably a longer conversation about sexuality and stuff, but there was, there was something that happened around that time. And maybe it was just both things happening at once or something. Um, yeah. but those are the two things I remember when I got really, uh, disillusioned with this scene that I'd really come up in and it raised me and that I'd been a big part of in some ways, um, sort of forming the ideas of, um, or at least in some sort of, uh, sort of chain of, of people that did that. I'm not claiming anything just to be clear about that. Um, but it was a, certainly a scene that I grew up in and yeah. that taught me a lot. And that, that I, I think I brought some stuff to, um, and I, when I saw that stuff, whether it was writing a sensitive song or hanging out with people after the show or sliding scale or shit, anything, it was depressing to see that stuff get big as it were. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, last two things I want to hit on before I let you go were the, um, you know, like you talked about before and, you know, I, I've read and I've paid attention to the fact that the, you know, like you said, you've said no to a lot of things that, you know, could be financially lucrative to yourself, whether it's, you know, a licensing deal for, you know, a Coke ad and like all that other stuff. Sure. Sure. You know, you get those fork in the road moments when you have to make a decision where it's like, well, if they pay me a lot of money, like, do I have to say yes to this or whatever? But sure. The, you know, now that we exist in an era, in, in my opinion, and I'd like, obviously would like to hear your opinion, where like selling out doesn't even like exist anymore. You know, that concept, uh, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, but like it, it has to be a pretty extreme example in order oh, to. I mean, yeah, think of advertising. I mean, no one thinks, you know, fucking Bonnie Bear is doing whiskey commercials and shit, you know, like <laughs> no, right. no one thinks twice about it anymore. And at the time when I even openly was contemplating the coke thing people just read me the goddamn right it act like even trying to have a conversation about it was just <laughs> right. um and but these days now i mean it's just yeah selling out is is, is the new black you know i mean it's just sort right. of yeah it is that i mean you know clearly you can't uh edit the your decisions based off of you know parameters that exist now but it's a uh, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of reflect on the idea where it's like, okay, if less, like you said, if the riot act wasn't being read to you and you were able to take this, um, because I think people, I mean, maybe this is giving too much credit or shrift to the music public in general, but like the idea that like, Hey, if a band makes, you know, $50,000 on like a licensing ad and then they're able to like buy a, you know, tour van and can get out there a little bit more. Isn't that more advantageous for you? And I think people understand that a little bit better, but I I just, sure. It's I mean, it's a, it's obviously just an extrapolation on the, like, would you steal bread to feed your family thing? Like do the ends outweigh the means. I mean, these are very, very old conversations and timeless, you know, for better and for worse. Um, and yeah, I just, I mean, the Coke commercial is definitely the most extreme example of it for me because I went through a lot of, I mean, I, I still miss that money sometimes, you know? Um, (laughs) like what, and what were they, I mean, if you remember, it's like, was it like, Oh, I remember very, very well. Yeah. They offered 75 grand out of the gate, um, to have lukewarm in a Coke commercial. Everyone in the band was I'm not going to say like excited, but everyone's up for it. Basically, um, new end had already broken up. Sure. Um, J tree was into it. 
and so I was on a phone call with I believe it was Darren from Jade Tree and the and the some representative for the ad company that was working with Coca Cola to produce this advertisement. Um, and so the offer was seventy five grand, which you know doing quick math ended up about thirty grand in my pocket after splitting it with you know the band and the label and da 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 da. Um, maybe 20, 30 grand, you know, taxes and all that shit. Um, which to me was like, again, one line drawing was doing pretty well at that point. I know how to live really, really inexpensively. I've like never had a dishwasher or laundry machines or a new car or anything. Um, and so I'm pretty good at living a simple life and I could do a few tours and come back with an, an amount of money somewhere around that. Um, it was not a life changing sum of money. It wasn't an impossible sum of money. And I obviously had all these misgivings about Coca-Cola and about lots of things. Um, so in that conversation, when I said no to 75 grand, immediately the lady was like, how about 150?" <laughs> Dude, that's I mean, crazy. Did not bat an eye, which, which almost shocked me into saying yes. Right, totally. You're like, okay. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? And then my little rebel for better, for worse kicked in. And I just thought kind of like, fuck you for just, first of all, why didn't you just offer that before? If you can just double your offer, like, what is that? Like, it just made me mad. And also it made me feel like, oh, there's just some like weird pool of money that this person has. And yeah, she just kind of thinks I'm going to roll over. Um, and so it was annoying, but I still pursued it. I took it seriously. I had a daughter. I wanted to, you know, do right by this. Um, and eventually, so two things happened. One, um, I took 15 grand to let the commercial as it existed air in like Australia and Thailand and shit, where it was summer at that time it was their summer ad campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I essentially took that because it was in we were gearing up for summer, you know, in the States and it was already summer there. I do remember that. And so their thing was like, look, just let us do this. Just give us this, like, you know, this, these like small markets. Let's like, just kind of, while you're thinking over the big deal, cause the big deal was the American campaign. Um, you know, just do that. So I, I said, okay, fine. I was kind of overwhelmed at that point. Just took it. Okay, cool thought about it more, um, talked to the director of the video, it was, it was ridiculous, um, had him send me, um, I hadn't even seen the video at that point, but had him send it to me uh, before, it, this is even before the I'd said yes to the Thailand, Australia shit. Um, yeah, and it was just, it was innocent and fine and sweet. And I basically just said to him, look, if you can structure this one way or another, where I end up with $200,000 in my bank account, um, which basically would have been like essentially like a half a million dollar deal. Um, that is a number that I couldn't responsibly say no to. Right. Um, right. Because, oh, the 150, so like that would end up at about 60 grand, you know, after all the splits. And even 60 grand was like, it's a, it was a ton of money for me, still is a ton of money for me, but it still wasn't all of Hannah's college funded in one fell swoop. It still wasn't a down payment on a house. It's still like, it, like it wasn't those things. Um, 
And 200, though, would change the entire arc of my life and my daughter's life. And I literally just like really thought about that number. And so it wasn't even a dogmatic thing. It was like, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to fucking sell out, as, as it were, I'm going to get what I think is worth it, basically. Um, and so they said no to that, which kind of made the whole thing easier because I realized that 60 grand in my pocket was great. And I wasn't taking it for granted. I thought about it a lot. And it just, I just decided, and I talk about this in the book a ton, but I, I just decided that it wasn't, I just didn't want anyone churning up the shows saying they'd seen my song on a Coke commercial. It just just didn't seem fun to me. It, it wasn't about a punk rock Fugazi ethos thing. It was a much more sort of tortured thought process than that. Um, but that's the way it ended up. Yeah, no, no. I appreciate you walking me through that. Cause yeah, it's yeah. always, I, you know, I just find those, those moments, not just from a, um, you know, a curiosity standpoint, but just these, because every band and artist goes through those moments of it does it doesn't even have to be about the you know payday like I just remember I was having a conversation with um you know Aaron Harris the drummer of Isis and they were talking about how they turned down uh, a tour with Tool and then they also turned down an uh, an opportunity to appear on the John Stewart The Daily Show when that was on right. the air because of right. the obvious connection to a band being you know <laughs> named before the terrorist group and everything like that but I just always find those moments so interesting because when you walk through your thought process like everybody can understand that situation much better and then hopefully that informs them a little bit differently when they encounter those decisions where it's like well do i feel comfortable with this or not so i appreciate you saying all that yeah i yeah exactly and i think the point of saying all that is just to say that it's worth thinking through it's all worth considering dogma no matter what i'm not a super big fan of and yeah so and i think it's a in our world these days Shit, man, our vote is our dollar as much as it is anything else. Yeah, oh, for uh, sure. It's definitely. You know, so uh, that's both a way in which I ask people to support me because it's like what you like in the world, support it. Because if not, it will go away. Um, yeah, and similarly, if you've got choices to make, make sure they're fun. Make sure they're rooted in love, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, the last thing I want to hit on yeah, was yeah. the um, – you know, because you've centered your life around, you know, the creation of art, the expression of yourself. And like you said, you know, you feel comfortable performing your songs, whether that's, you know, by yourself or on stage and you've made it work in one way or another. And like you said, you live a very simple lifestyle and you're not, um, you know, you're, you're not looking this, uh, you're not looking at these opportunities as like, okay, this, this is the step to put me in that, you know, proverbial, you know, mansion or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny. There's, I, there's a band at a, I'll name them because I don't think there's anything to be shameful of. But um, Toad the Wet Sprocket, of course, they did a they did a Kickstarter a while back, and I, don't know, I think they raised like two hundred, two hundred fifty grand or something like that. And I forget what the exact items were at the time, but it just seemed a little bit when Kickstarter was kind of going off the rails, and Amanda Palmer's making a million dollars all of a sudden, and Zach Braff is doing a movie, and you know Veronica Mars, and sort of like a lot of like relatively larger entities were kind of commandeering this platform that I thought was really great for just really small scale artists. And so Toad was talking about it. And I think in their explanation about it, or maybe in a conversation with one of them or something, they said something really sweet and innocuous about like, you know, wanting to support their families, which is totally great. And I have a <laughs> kind of a thing about music and art, which is that I don't know 
that it's even appropriate to go into a career making art where one is aspiring to a middle or middle upper class life. I, I don't think those two things work well together. I think there's something about art in any form in which it's interesting and creative and not super weighed down by commercial expectations and all and pressure. I think that's kind of impossible to do and live the life of a doctor or something, you know, like as far as financial stability. And I think when people, if, if any artist that hears this is trying to have this sort of like comfy existence being an artist, I don't, I'm not sure that they shouldn't try doing something else. Sure. There's, um, there's stuff that's way more secure. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Well, and to be an artist and be, have that level of security, there's some serious choices that are going to have to be made as far as who you're going to be working with, um, who, how you're going to be making music, what you're going to be saying yes and no to. Um, that's just, and that's just real. You know, we've, we live in this sort of world of aspirational thinking and, you know, everything is possible all at once. And I really, I don't, I don't believe that. I think there's, there's always choices and choices and that's, what's beautiful about it. Absolutely. Yeah. To to really, yeah. To really aspire to be super successful as an artist. I'm not sure you're not maybe aspiring to be an entertainer, maybe a craftsperson, maybe, I don't know, a business person working in the field of things we call art, but I don't think art is about a drawing or a song or a guitar or a play. I think art I think plumbing and law and teaching can be every bit as artistic as any number of artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it has to do with, we're back to scale. We're really, we're, we're back to scale. Um, and yeah. So anyway, yeah. no, 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 absolutely. The, yeah. Um, but I, I'm going to presume at certain points there was that, um, you know, moment where it's like, the the idea that you can still create music and be an artist and you know play in bands and stuff like that but that doesn't have to be your sole um you know source of income and you have to you know kind of piece these well, other that's, things that's an interesting other level too that is totally true and i there's there uh, we've gone way over 100 words of course um and that's i know totally. that there's lots of and i'm having a lot of fun and by the way are you recording this i <laughs> Dude, it would be brutal if I was not recording it. Well, but I, I know. I've had some amazing spoken interviews that then later they were taking notes, which is cool, but no, I've been talking is, a mile a minute. So no, we're good. A, I would really, if you would be willing to share it um, unedited, I'd love to have a copy of this just to have it forever. Absolutely. Because um, it's been a really interesting conversation for me, especially right now where I'm at in my life. So thank you for it. My pleasure. Um, B, I'm excited to hear this podcast and share it. And C, yeah, so the, the art yeah, the art as hobby thing, that's a different thing too. Um, and I've gotten into some uncomfortable conversations with people who think their art is more pure because they work a straight job and make this stuff on the side. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too sure about that either, to, just to keep it short. Um, sure. And it's, that's worth talking about. Um, I think there's also something about taking the leap to kind of try and risk it and go like, I'm going to try and live for my ideas. Um, and trying to keep those ideas, what's interesting about the ideas in the first place and not turn them into a commodity. Um, sure. 
and so anyway, there, there's God, there's so much there, but yeah, to, to your thing about, uh, about ISIS, which I love hearing that story, I regret, no, I don't regret, but I have misgivings, especially when I'm feeling sad or poor or lonely or whatever. I wonder about accepting the incubus system tour when far reunited Dillinger escape plan offered us. I think a month, uh, Deftones offered us a month. I was pretty deep into fatherhood then and I didn't, didn't want to go for a month straight. Um, and I didn't want to go back into that world, um, that like large scale rock world. Um, I've turned down, gosh, solo. I've turned down a ton of tours just because people wanted me to go out longer than I wanted to. So it didn't even have to do with money per se. Sure. It just had to do with what is, you know, touring is the most efficient financially, when you just fucking go and never come home. That's just the deal. That's just math. And I totally get it. And it's never been worth it to me to do that. Um, and I think it's really interesting they turned out John Stewart and stuff, and I'd love to talk to them about that because I've never turned down, as far as I can remember, an appearance like that, and that would be much more confusing for me. Um, so, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I'm never thinking it through, basically. Yeah, no, no, it's really, yeah, it's really... Um yeah, it's just it's interesting, and like I said, when you have those fork in the road moments, and you can walk through with the person who made the decision, like you can ultimately see where they're coming from. Whether or not you agree with it, it doesn't matter. It's just the like idea behind it of like, oh yes, I, I see where you're coming from. But yes, but um, yeah. Well, Jonah, thank you so much for hanging out. I really appreciate this. This um, was rad. This was super fun. Thanks for yeah. No, pro- no, no, no asking such beautiful questions. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes, Mr. Jonah, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you to Amy, his publicist, for pulling this together. It's always uh, it's always nice when a plan comes together and you have a, a great chat. And next week is another great chat like I love to have and bring to you. It is Tom Damiano from Trail of Lies, the incredible hardcore band from the Syracuse, upstate New York area. I love the band so much. Just just unequivocally on board from the moment that I heard them where I was like, Oh, this, this band is spectacular. Just love what they do. Um, anyways, Tom was awesome. Just a great chat. And, um, you know, you can tell certain people who are, uh, I guess, seasoned interviewers and, uh, Tom definitely is, you know, and primarily just because like most hardcore bands, like don't get quote unquote interviewed very much, except if it's in like, you know, local zines or whatever, but it's not like you get the, you know, like alternative press or revolver, you know, seven page, like we're doing a huge profile on you. So anyways, Tom was just such a great chat and I get to bring that to you next week. Also, don't forget about our friends at drip drop. They are the best electrolyte powder developed by a doctor to treat dehydration. But I mean, let's be honest, this stuff tastes incredible. It gets you dialed in as far as your hydration is concerned. So you need to go to dripdrop.com slash words to get 20% off any purchase. That's dripdrop.com slash words. I endorse this wholeheartedly and love it. And of course, a special shout out to our homies at Sonos. Pretty much the best speaker I have ever listened to in my entire life. And that is not hyperbole. I've got one in my living room. I've got one in my kid's room. I just love it so much. Actually, last night, my kid was listening to music as he was falling asleep, and he was like, Daddy, can you turn on the Sonos? And I was like, from my bedroom, just dialed it in, boom, plays his playlist. It was great. I love Sonos so much, and you need to go to Sonos.com to learn more. The best sounding, easiest to set up speaker system I have ever encountered in my life. Go to Sonos.com to learn more, and like I always tell you, 
Be safe, everybody. See you next week. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hey, Miles. Yes. It's Jack from work. Yes. Hi. Did you know that we host a daily news and culture podcast where people can I go to get caught up on know, what is yes. happening? Are you? Yes. Are you confused about that? You're talking about the Daily Zeitgeist. I just to show to that make we do sure every day. you knew and that everybody knew that you could listen to us every day, twice a day, talk about what is happening and they could learn everything without feeling the life drain from their soul yeah i think at the daily zeitgeist we like to give people a balance of just enough news that they feel informed and just enough laughs that they're not overwhelmed they can have a decent day after listening so guys listen to the daily zeitgeist on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free